I'm Kevin Ellis, and this is Conflict of Interest, a Vermont podcast with a national scope, or a national podcast with a Vermont point of view, or both. Our goal is to go beneath the surface of our political and media culture to explain how the world really works. We talk to the people who make the country run for better or worse, and we ask the questions that guests don't get on cable news. This is our first episode out of the box, so welcome to you all. First, some housekeeping. This is an interview show designed for insight and exploration, not cheap thrills. I have a point of view, so you will get that. And then you will get interviews with really important, smart people, some of whom you know, others you won't. But I do it from the great state of Vermont with a bit of a jaundiced yet optimistic eye. After 30 years in journalism, politics, sports, radio, and other pursuits, I've seen a lot, and I like to bring that knowledge to others. So here we go. Maggie Haberman is the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The New York Times who has made a specialty out of not just covering but understanding Donald Trump. Unlike most reporters confronted with the Trump phenomenon in 2016 when he was elected president in one of the strangest elections in U.S. history, Haberman has known the mess from her days as a tabloid reporter at The New York Post and now at The New York Times. She joined the Times in 2015 and has spent the next seven years on Amtrak and on the phones between New York and Washington, chronicling the rise and perhaps fall of Trump. Her book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, is a massive bestseller. It is not so much a whodunit, but a character analysis of the guy who took over American politics and its media. I interviewed her as part of my Vermont Viewpoint radio show on WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Let's listen. So first of all, why write the book? Uh, You're incredibly busy. You cover a highly pressurized uh, beat at the New York Times. There's a slew of other books that give you the inside story about all the shenanigans going on in the White House. Why write this book? Well, this was a, a different book than the one that you, the ones you just described. And there's a, a you know, number one, uh, you know, why write it? Because I felt like I, you know, could offer a perspective that, um, that others who either weren't from New York or who hadn't known or covered Donald Trump prior to his candidacy uh, were less able to do, and and part of it was, you know, a, a book is just different in terms of uh, how much perspective you can offer and and how deep you can go uh, on certain things, um, and uh, and that was really why, um, you know. Now that said, to your point, the Trump story continued, um, and it was uh, a lot of time toggling between the book and doing the story, uh, doing stories for the paper. But uh, but, I, you know, there was, I think, something more to say and, and something deeper to say. And that's what I tried to do here. And much of that different approach is taken up in the first oh, third of the book, uh, describing the background of Trump and, and the way he grew up and where he grew up. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. So the 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 way that I tried to go about telling this story is uh, 
that to understand the Trump presidency, you have to understand where he came from, who he is, the world that shaped him, his father, cultural forces in New York City, racial and, and political forces in New York City, um, the, the aspects of corruption that touched on so many different elements of the life that he was part of, um, and, and how that all foretold a presidency for which he exported this understanding of the way the world worked to Washington uh, and, and to the Republican Party. And so I do focus a lot on, you know, who he learned from and who his influences were and, and what his influences were uh, and, and how unchanged he is from basically 1980s New York to now. <laughs> the names bring back uh, incredible memories for me. Um, I mean, it's a rogues gallery of New York in the 70s of 80s and 80s. Abe Beam, Mead Esposito, Joe Bruno, Ed Koch, Tony Salerno, Robert mm. Moses, not to mention Rudolph Giuliani and and others, some of whom go to jail. Uh, you describe, I think, beautifully the machine politics of, of Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. And and what you describe is it, it, Trump really hasn't changed from those days. No, that's right. I mean, he, there really is a preserved and amber quality to him uh, from that era. You know, his cultural references are all from that era. You know, if you ever listen to Donald Trump talk, even at his rallies, he'll talk about how many times he was on the cover of Time magazine. Right. And na- national news magazines are not having a, a heyday right now. Right. Um, so it just sort of speaks to, to how much of a throwback he is in a lot of his understanding of the way the world works. Um, you know, but to your point, as you mentioned, Mead Esposito, I mean, you know, it's really hard to explain to people who aren't from New York or you know, in most big cities in, in America have had an aspect of this that New York is pretty renowned for it. You know, machine politics, you know, a, a Tammany Hall derivative just touched on everything in the five boroughs and uh, and sometimes beyond it. Meet Esposito was the Brooklyn Democratic Party boss, you know, who, who Trump would wax nostalgic about in his first year in the White House. And I think, Kevin, that it speaks to the degree to which he just has this very sort of contextless understanding of the way governance works. It's all about strength and dominance. You know, he uses the same terms to describe Mead Esposito, who was a a deeply corrupt figure, um, as he uses to describe Xi Jinping, the president of China, ruled with an iron fist. Right. Um, You have to be strong. You have to be strong. And, And his... One thing I try to explore, too, is how much his idea of, you know, his, his concept of, of, a, of a strong leader is informed by the idea that violence informs that strength. And then that, in turn, informs what makes a good boss. But all of this is preserved in a certain moment in time. We'll come back to that word violence. Um, so <laughs> I want to talk about Roy Cohn because uh, I am the son of a mother who – uh, in the early 50s was a clerk at the CIA in D.C. and mm. would, ta- would take her lunch hour and walk in her pumps up to Capitol Hill and watch the the House Un-American Activities Committee and, and, and before that, McCarthy. Um, so Roy Cohn was Trump's lawyer uh, 
uh, closeted gay, uh, died of AIDS, uh, and and to this day Trump is to be heard, according to your book, uh, asking staff, why can't I get a Roy Cohn figure? Maybe you could talk about Cohn for a minute. Sure. So Roy Cohn, first, um, to your, you just described him very well, you know, uh, McCarthyite, um, you know, leader of the Lavender Scare, which was a, a purge of gay employees in the federal government, you know, both a closeted gay man and deeply homophobic, died of AIDS and was dropped by Trump uh, when he was sick. Um, but Cohn first meets Trump in, in 1973, or at least joins his side in 1973, when Trump and his father and their company are being sued by the Justice Department for racially discriminatory housing practices. And Cohn gives Trump what becomes a template for his life, which is don't settle, keep fighting. Uh, and Trump Trump does that over and over again. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, essentially use the courts as a PR vehicle. Um, and I mentioned, you know, don't settle, except, of course, Trump did settle that suit um, and and then in doing so insisted he had really won, which became another lifetime template. Um, Cohn, you know, sort of taught Trump, A, that every relationship is transactional and B, that a lawyer can be something more akin to a mafia don um, than, than an actual, actual right. lawyer. Um, and Trump has sought to duplicate that you know, throughout his life, if not looking specifically for Roy Cohn, you know, he was famously heard to ask officials in the White House, where's my Roy Cohn? Um, but he he likes lawyers. One of his friends said to me a long time ago, Trump likes lawyers who will do anything. And that is true. And I think we have seen that over and over again. Now, that doesn't mean that every lawyer who works for Trump will do anything, um, but he tires of the ones who won't. Right. That's right. So given all that, it's one thing that struck me finishing the book was that you basically have written a book that says, and it's not the first time people have said this, but I, I feel like this is the first time that a book has wrapped it all up in such a cogent way that everything about Trump's persona is made up or exaggerated or an outright lie. The, the wealth, the women, the political claims, the, the all of it seems to be ex- completely exaggerated. And yet, and this is a whole nother show, right? And yet he wins the presidency. I mean, I wrote a blog post about Gary Hart in 1987 going mm-hmm. down on the Donna Rice uh, issue. And uh, he was destroyed over something far less than than one incident in Donald Trump's uh, political career, and yet right. Trump survives? Well, I think a couple of things. I, I would, I, I don't think everything, and I think this is key, everything with him is not made up. Right. A lot is made up, but there's enough real that people have a very hard time telling um, what's reality and what's not with him, which is one of the ways in which he succeeds. Um, you know, that was, for instance, you know, his, his, he did have some successes in business, but it was never – he also had a lot of failure, um, and he was never commensurate with you know the, the tycoons of industry who he tried to pretend that he was parallel to. Um, but you know that was clearer in New York if you were up close than, say, it was across the country when you're seeing this guy, particularly in the 2000s, on a show called The Apprentice, and a lot of people thought that was real. 
And right. so I think that the the blurring of of what's real and what's not is is key to his is, is key to his success uh, politically anyway, um, because that persona was what what people voted for, what a lot of people voted for. Um, you know, he he is. Uh, he is able to survive these things, I think, in part. And I mean, look, he's he is sui generis in our politics, right? There is there is there is no new Donald Trump coming along. There are people who are trying to do certain things that he does, but there's no one else who's been part of the pop culture fabric for as long as he has. Right. And I think that's a really important part of why he has been able to to get away with things. Um, you know, number one. Voters don't blame him the way they do other people or haven't so far. And then over time, you know, the various scandals with him just took on kind of a similar dull sheen, um, you know. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, he also goes about this with a certain shamelessness that um, really no one else does. It, and that goes back to that Roy Cohn approach of, you know, admit no wrongdoing. Right. Um, and so if you are willing to do that, that can be an edge. Maggie, I was interested in that uh, subhead, the making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. Can you talk about the breaking of America? How has Donald Trump broken America? Sure. So actually, you know, and I, I write about this. Um, he didn't create the partisanship that is that is ripping the country apart. Um, you know, he, he, uh, he, this existed for decades before he got on the scene, but he, he did fuel it and benefit from it and escalate it. Uh, and, you know, the country is now defined politically and, and not just in the Republican party, uh, by who you hate and who hates you back. And it's very hard to find commonality after that. Right. Can we go back to that question? I go back to the Gary Hart campaign of 1987, where, oh, I don't know, some of our listeners may remember that. Um, Hart, Hart is destroyed by a minor scandal, and Trump uh, has a wealth of scandal, and yet uh, almost seems to prosper. The comment he made during the campaign in which he could shoot somebody on in Times Square or Fifth Avenue, I can't remember, uh, mm-hmm. and get more popular – I think it's yep. worth it's worth probing that that element of our society that that I mean he was right actually Trump was yes, right he was. when he said that he, he was Trump has actually been you know reductively predictable uh, uh, predictive about a lot of how things would go in terms of uh, in terms of his political future um, what Trump is very uh, uh, adept in understanding is sort of the darkness of human emotions. Mm. And he's been very, very good at using that to his own, uh, his own, his own effect. Um, you know, I, I think that again, I go back to what I said about shamelessness. I mean, Gary Hart, you know, stepped out of the ring. Trump just says, I'm not going to go no matter what you do. And at a certain point, voters have to decide whether that that's, I mean, we, we, you know, when we have these conversations, voters sort of tend not to get mentioned. Right. Right. There's a lot of conversation about the media. There's a lot of conversation about um, the candidates. Voters are the ones who make these choices and they do have agency. Yeah. Well, a personal anecdote, Hart actually 
people forget this, but he, he had this thought after he got out of the race and he said, why should I get out of the race? Let the voters decide. So he gets back in the race and there were two reporters slogging along the trail with him alone, no staff, mm. no money. And that was Maureen Dowd of the New York Times uh-huh. and, and me. And, uh, <laughs> and I was Great. the Washington correspondent for the Nashville, Tennessee. And, and of course, Maureen wrote a beautiful piece about a broken and shattered Gary Hart and mine was inferior, but, uh, it, it just goes back to, Trump never gives in uh, the the Billy Bush uh, uh, tape about grabbing women by their private parts. I mean, that that was enough to take down any politician. And yet he just moved on. Well, what was interesting about that moment, and I write about this, is um, when that weekend, ha- you know, it was the tape came out on a Friday night. Right. Um, and, and then the WikiLeaks email started soon after that. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he does this video that's essentially, you know, and I'm sorry if anyone was offended, but hey, Bill Clinton said bad things too. Yeah. And then the next day, uh, I was, uh, I was going to say staking out, which is, it, that means nothing to anyone who's <laughs> listening. Um, I was, I was assigned to wait at Trump Tower and watch who was coming in and out, uh, of the building. Um, <clears throat> and while I was doing it, I was fielding some phone calls and, and paying attention to what was happening. And, you know, Paul Ryan uh, was uh, holding an appearance in Wisconsin, and he, he mentions, you know, in, 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 in generalities, this scandal, and he gets booed by the crowd for saying something condemnatory about Trump. Uh, and that was a pretty revealing moment. Um, you know, what Trump capitalized on, to your back to your question about the breaking of Trump, capitalized on the tail end of the Tea Party anger. Ah. And so much of the Tea Party anger was about, you know, who fights, who fights, who fights. You know, and that's just fundamentally different um, than than what we had seen in politics. You know, in 2011, when Trump was considering running for president, part of why he was doing well was that, you know, the base was looking for someone who would, quote-unquote, take the fight to President Obama. Um, and, and Trump realized that, which is, you know, Trump, and, 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 and some of that was absolutely tied up in backlash to, uh, electing the first black president, you know, which is how that dovetails with Trump spreading this lie that Trump, that uh, Obama was not a U.S. citizen or questioning it. Um, but that was what that energy was, was, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting back, we're fighting back. And so. When your entire persona becomes that, um, you know it's um, it, it's impossible to uh, it's impossible to a step away from that and b it gives voters an excuse to stay with you. There's a key moment in the book you describe an, a, an encounter encounter with a voter in I believe Iowa, and this gets to the apprentice experience. I mean Trump was a a, a middling real estate developer and uh, and and social climber, et cetera, in New York circles, uh, had fought off several bankruptcies. And then The Apprentice TV show comes along. And why don't, why don't you describe for us an, an encounter you had in uh, Iowa, I believe in 2016, but I may have that wrong. Yes, it was. It was January uh, 2016 in, in Dubuque, Iowa. Right. Um, so I was following Trump around um, in um, 
uh, in the final days of the caucuses. And, you know, including, and I don't get into this in the book, but including traveling with him in his SUV at one point, you know, and he would get off the stage from these rallies and he'd just be pouring, sweat would be pouring off of him. Um, you know, it was like, it was like being with a rock star or something. <laughs> and, um, and he's, you know, swigging all this water. Um, and in, at one rally at an airport hangar, um, uh, I was going around to the crowd, this is in Dubuque, asking people a very leading question. It was essentially, is, are you, you know, are you here because the show's going to end, basically? You know, the spectacle's going to move it, going to end. You know, the presumption was he's going to lose the caucuses. Uh, so, you know, are you, are you here to see him one last time? And one after another, people told me that they were going to caucus for him. One guy looked at me like I had eight heads. Uh, and when I asked him why he was going to caucus for him, he said, I watched him run his business and he was referring to The Apprentice. And I really hadn't understood until that moment just how ingrained the perceptions of him were from this television show. So which, by the way, and you describe this in the book, which was a fake soundstage with a, right, fake, with, fake, with a fake boardroom and a fake chair. And where they tried to, you know, gussy up the, the shots in the casinos, um, you know, because it was it was clear that these casinos had seen better days and they smelled like smoke. And, you know, I mean, many casinos smell like smoke, but on and on and on and on. And so, um, you know, he was and, and I write about this, too. He was in the middle of one of his one of one of his casino bankruptcies right. when this show was being shot. Right. I mean, it's like just the gap between the projection and the reality. And there's, there's another scene that I write about in the book where one of the executives um, at NBC who is involved in, in this show, you know, goes to meet with Trump at Trump tower. And, you know, while they're, they're projecting this image on television of him as this sort of, you know, high flying billionaire, the guy is in, in Trump's office for like an hour and the phone doesn't ring once. And that's also pretty telling just about, the level of in-demand versus not. Now, by then, Trump was licensing a lot of products. You know, The Apprentice opened up some cash for him in a way that was sort of new for the first time in his life. It wasn't his father or a bank loan or, you know, rent. Um, but it also kept him afloat when he was having, you know, other other issues uh, financially. It kept It sustained him. But it also made him look bigger than he was. I mean, one of the whole things that Trump does is make himself look really, really big. And I think that's one of the, you know, that's been a challenge for the Republican Party has been, you know, he does have a significant base of support within the Republican Party. Yeah. It's just not yeah. every Republican or a number of Republicans who would be open to somebody else at this point. Maggie, with regard to your uh, encounter in Iowa, I had a similar encounter here in Vermont to bring it home with a farmer neighbor of mine and right in the middle of uh, the campaign, he, I, I was uh, visiting and he had Trump signs in his front yard and I was I was really surprised by that and I said I said why are you why are you voting for this guy and he said uh because he's a fighter he runs a good business he'll run the country like a business but but what he was most focused on was that he and his family had been screwed by the system and that Trump was going to change that he was going to drain the swamp and I said well wait a minute Aren't you – I mean, Trump, if nothing else, Trump doesn't like people like you. He doesn't like people who work with their hands. He stiffs his contractors. 
um, he, you know, he, he looks down on, on working people as suckers. Uh, not my, those are not my words. Those are his words. And yet he gets elected, uh, basically on that platform. And I wonder if you can keep talking about that. So you, you hit on something that I think is important. I mean, one is the fighter issue, which we talked about. The other is I just think there is a, he has, he has found a way to land on both sides of the cultural divide right. in some, in some weird way. Um, you know, you, mentioned this earlier, that he spent all this time trying to social climb in New York, which he did. And I write about the fact that he sort of, you know, spent a lifetime unable to decide what he wanted from New York's elites, right? He either, he wanted to be accepted by them, he wanted to be rejected by them, he wanted to claim he was rejected. Uh, One of the striking moments that I've had in the last couple of months was talking to a consultant for a uh, candidate, not Trump, um, in, in, in the midterms, and I'll, I'll, um, without saying who they were, the person was saying that Trump sees himself in this person. You know, they're both working class people who have been rejected by the elites. And I kept thinking, what? Because Trump grew up as a son of privilege. And, you know, we didn't actually talk about that before, but right. I think that is a, a, a big part of why Donald Trump believes the world is always going to work out for him is because when you're you know, raised wealthy and, um, you know, you, you're, you're told that things are going to go your way because they should, you know, you get hardwired that way. And there's, you think the world is hardwired that way. There's and a so, great, great anecdote early in the book of him being chauffeured uh, to school and even chauffeured uh, on his paper route in inclement weather. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, it, he, this is what he was, he was known for, you know, his, his, his father had, you know, two two cars sitting in the driveway. Um, uh, he he had novelty plates. Um, you know, they were they were a very well tended to family. You know, the house looks sort of like a nondescript house now. At the time, it was it was it was a pretty big deal. And so, you know, and his his father is his father is a self made man, um, but Trump is not a self made man, and yet he has. Trying to convince people that he is one has been so key to his. I think it's not just his public image, but his his view of himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a big piece of it. But the degree to which, just to get back to what I was saying, the degree to which he has convinced a lot of people that he comes from a different world than he does has been pretty remarkable. Um, and so to get back to why you know your neighbor would say that. I think that's a, you know, or the person you knew would say that. I think that's a big piece of why. I think that, you know, people respond to what they see and hear. And, you know, he he does not talk as if he, you know, he just walked out of the halls of Harvard. And, you know, he acts as if he is a champion of the working class. You know, I mean, one of the – a Democratic strategist in 2018 complained to me bitterly that Democrats had not done more – to try to frame, you know, Trump as they they framed their argument about Trump in terms of, you know, Mueller or the, the Mueller investigation or various things related to the campaign, as opposed to the fact that he had signed this massive tax bill that cut taxes for the wealthy, um, and that there was an there was an argument that this person was saying should have been made against him for that. Um, I think that the fact that he is so hard to pin down in any one way 
is, is has been a key to his success and is something that I tried to explore in the book. It, it is something you explore. And I'm fascinated by his quality that grew as he was president and and where he would uh, get off the helicopter and walk over to the waiting press corps. And, you know, most most presidents don't enjoy that uh, and avoid it. Most politicians avoid that. He he embraced it. And as you say, uh, well, we, uh, that's my next question, which is, I mean, he, he likes going and winging it with the press corps in certain forums, right? Oh, he, he in in many forms. He, you know, I remember asking a White House aide in 2017. Essentially, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the question was essentially, why is he engaging with me on something? Because right. he was clearly very angry about some story that I had written. And the person's response was, he wants to see if he can get a good story. Now, I, you know, good is obviously a, you know his term, their term, um, but that is how he looks at it. He just wants to see what he can where he can push the limit and how he can sell you. And, uh, you know, White, another White House aide told me in 2017 that they had never encountered somebody who tried so hard to manufacture coverage <laughs> because right. media coverage is pretty built in with the presidency. Yeah. Um, and and all presidents hate their coverage, um, you know, to, to some extent or another. Uh, you know, he um, he just happens to seek it in a, in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a brilliance to that uh, that's that's still – well, I think you write about it in the book. I want to talk about January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you've said this, and you say it in the book as well. Trump doesn't act – doesn't think or act strategically, that he doesn't ever really have a plan, that he – these are my words – that he kind of wings it. And I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that, that he is skilled enough to throw chum in the water and see what happens and then see where it goes and just react. And that seems to be a little bit of what happened around the January 6th riot. Um, how does that not having a plan apply to January 6th? So it's a, it's a great question. I would phrase it a little differently. He does not have the ability to think strategically or long term, but he does. He is very calculated, moment to moment. Yeah, um, and that is very real. And so, you know, I think that the, the the calculating piece is what you saw in terms of January sixth and him trying to stay in office. And you know, the, the House Select Committee has done a lot on this, which is to try to 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 make the point that he. You know, they, they have argued that everything was premeditated with him. And I don't, you know, I, I can't speak to that, but I certainly can say that, you know, this is somebody who has, he has been saying that anything he doesn't win is rigged for a very long time. So it was very clear that that was going to be, you know, how he would approach this as well, and that he was never going to concede, and that should have been clear to everybody as well. Um, what I think January 6th was, to some extent, was a failure of imagination in the sense that so many people in Washington were focused on the idea that Trump was going to use the military to stay in office. Um, and given his sort of lack of understanding of exactly what he could get away with in government, he always tried to push it as far as he could or have other people be the people do, be, be the ones doing things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, he is not um, 
it was it was always likelier that he was going to sort of work up a crowd um, and that that was going to be what happened. Um, there's another scene in the in the book where he's talking to David Perdue, who was then the senator and soon to be not senator uh, from Georgia. And he's trying to pressure Purdue into helping him get what he wants, which is, you know, officials interceding on his behalf. And he keeps saying, people are angry, people are angry. You know, he's he's aware of what the impact of his words are. Um, you know, he, he he has seen this scenario over and over again. Um, do I do I think that he envisioned that there was going to be a deadly riot? It's impossible to, to get in his head that way. But, you know, his goal was to stay in office and whatever, I think whatever happened, happened. Peggy, I want to ask this question responsibly, um, but you raise it. The issue of danger and violence in Trump's approach to governing and and uh, marketing, etc. And I think back to January 6th, the hang Mike Pence chants, the coming for Nancy Pelosi uh, and I don't see this addressed a lot in interview shows and TV, radio, et cetera, and newspapers. What do you, what do you put your, speculate for a minute, if you would, for us and, and think about what might have happened if the police and authorities had not gotten control of that situation? What if they truly had found Pence and Pelosi? What do you think might have happened? I can't, I don't think I can venture a guess as to what people, you know, yeah. people who were a part of a mob might might or might not have done. Right. Um, it's hard to know what people will actually do in a moment, but what they were talking about was pretty bad. Um, you know, there were people talking about hanging the vice president. There were people talking about, um, you know, about about killing Nancy Pelosi. Um, I want to I want to go back to something that I had, you know, mentioned about Trump. And how it's, you know, it's very clear the impact of his words. I reported back in June that um, Mark Short, who was Pence's chief of staff and is still is one of his top advisors, had warned the lead Secret Service agent for Pence the day before January 6th that he, he had called this guy to his West Wing office. And he warned him that Trump was going to turn on Pence publicly. You know, Trump had just been ratcheting up his attacks on all these public officials and that Trump was going to turn on Pence publicly and that they they could have a security risk because of it, which is a and, you know, this rally was happening the next day. Right. It's a pretty remarkable thing to think about that you have the chief of staff to the vice president uh, alerting the Secret Service uh, that they could end up having a security risk from the president. Uh, And and this is and I write about this. This is the only. This is the only uh, uh, security risk that Mark Short had ever flagged for the Secret Service in his time in that job, which was, you know, for the final two years of, of the term. It just goes to how sort of clear the risks involved in some of this language were, right? I mean, and, and had been clear for some time. Um, you know, what the, what the crowd may have done, you know, again, it, it, it is really hard to to say what people will do once they're confronted with a situation. But um, the rhetoric was so violent. You know, there were there were fake gallows showing up at, outside the Capitol, you know, and as it was, it was already a deadly riot. So it's, right. um, 
there's probably there's probably nothing good to extrapolate from any of that. But I just I, I don't feel comfortable predicting. You you have been you take grief uh, from not just two sides politically for in your work. You take grief also from the president himself, <clears throat> the former president himself. Uh, I've been yelled at by governors and mayors, but never by a president. Um, I, I can't imagine the pressure that that is. And, and, and with the publication of this book, I get texts from people, friends of mine on the left who say, well, she, she held, uh, important news for the book that if she had published in, pu- published in the New York Times, things might have turned out differently. What, can you address those, that particular criticism? I mean, I, you know, I would need to know specifically what we're talking about, but, um, you know, books are a different uh, process. They take time. I didn't turn to this project in earnest until after his second impeachment trial ended. Um, I reported um, hundreds upon hundreds of stories uh, during his presidency and during um, the transition. Um, you know, my goal is always to get confirmed, reportable information published as, as soon as possible. Um uh, you know, in many cases, uh, I did not learn of things until uh, after, well after he had left office and well after the trial had ended. So a fascinating uh, part of your life seems to be that you write a lot of these stories, including I would add two last week while you're also on the road uh, talking about your book, that uh, you live in Brooklyn, New York. You are not a creature of Washington, D.C., um, I did two stints there. Uh, are you on Amtrak going back and forth uh, <laughs> when you're covering the White House? Are you are you working the phones from your Brooklyn uh, off uh, home or are you in the New York Times headquarters? How did you manage your reporting day to day when it's a Washington based subject, but you're in New York? Sure. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't cover the White House anymore just to be clear to listeners. Um, I, uh, uh, but I was on the Amtrak a lot. Um, I was working out of my house. I was working out of the newsroom um, pre-COVID. Um, you know, it, obviously COVID changed everything for everybody. Right. Um, but yeah, I was just, it was, it was just a matter of sort of being on all the time. Um, can, can I go back to one thing that you, when you were asking just about, you know, Please. things might've turned out yeah. when you mentioned, you know, the, the complaint that things might've turned out differently. Trump, Trump lost the election. Um, I, I was really very uh, rigorous in, in coverage in 2020. Well, I was coverage, r- rigorous in coverage throughout the presidency, but um, you know, particularly about his failures around COVID and about uh, his aggression against protesters in, in 2020, um, uh, and and uh, how he was mis- you know badly mishandling this pandemic. Um, I, I, when people say things might have turned out differently, I don't. I, I'm not quite certain what that refers to. Oh, I think I got a text. Again, uh, this is an yeah, I think I got a text from somebody uh, saying that uh, Trump knew he lost, but was not admitting so publicly. And if she had reported that he knew privately that he had lost and was admitting it to AIDS, that uh, that might have changed things, which I don't agree mm-hmm. with. But Well, I mean, right. So that that I don't know what it would have changed, number one. But number two, um, if I had known that I would have uh, uh, reported that at the time. Yeah. Okay. Lightning round. Uh, does he <laughs> run for president? Uh, I think yes. Yeah. Can he win? 
Uh, yes, he can win. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns around these investigations into him. I think we should just be bearing that in mind. But, um, uh, and so it's a little harder to predict, but I think that in a 50-50 country where uh, I'm not clear how much voters care about the investigations that are taking place, I certainly think voters have largely tuned out the January 6th investigation. Um, you know, yes, I think people who assume that he can't win uh, are making the same mistake over and over again. Yes, that's right. Why did he take the documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago? I know you're not a psychiatrist, but... I mean, there could be... There, I think there's a couple of reasons. You know, I, I think that he he likes trophies, and I think we know that. Um, you know, I think he he does tend to look at everything in terms of leverage, and, you know, that can mean different things in different moments. Um, you know, Chris Christie posited on television... Uh, a week and a half ago that this is part of Trump kind of pretending he's still president. And I think there's something to that. Um, The one that I have the harder time seeing is that that he was going to sell this information only because I just don't think he really has the wherewithal to do that. But uh, uh, that that requires a a level of intricacy that that he doesn't tend to know, but um, tend to have. But, you know, I think I think it is any and all of those reasons. Uh, what would a second term for Trump look like? And I hope you'll s- uh, focus specifically on a term called Schedule F. Mm. I mean, look, that, that was a fantastic story by Jonathan Swan, um, two stories actually a couple of months ago, just about the amount of energy that is going into converting certain slots in the government from civil service to political appointments. And they had tried doing this in 2020 um, and didn't succeed. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's, you know, it, it does require, you know, a follow through that Trump sort of never has. He often talks about these things and then they don't happen. Uh, I think that the bigger question is not schedule F, although that is certainly a piece of it, but, but, you know, another is who is he going to get confirmed? And then when he can't get certain people confirmed, is he just going to staff them in the white house as he did, you know, in non-confirmed positions? Uh, at various points in his in his term, you know, I, I think that it is going to be a presidency that is governed by spite. And I think that, you know, I know there's some notion that Trump has somehow learned how to do the presidency better. I don't think that that's true. I do think that he understands that uh, personnel is key. And I think that'll be a big focus. That's our show for today. Thanks so much to Maggie Haberman for doing it. If you like us or hate us, check us out wherever you get your podcast. That means Apple, Spotify, Google, and lots of other places. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com, where you can comment on the podcast and subscribe to my weekly newsletter, also called Conflict of Interest. I'm also on Twitter, at Ellis52K. Our show is produced, engineered, and managed by Danny McGivergan, executive producer, me, Special thanks to Phineas Ellis and the folks at Studio Friends in New York who make it all possible. I'll be back next week with another edition of Conflict of Interest. See you then.